Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today, talking about opiates, I have fellow pharmacist Greg Cramp. Greg is a community or retail pharmacist in the Toledo, Ohio area. Okay, and Greg, where did you go to school again, and what year did you graduate? Yeah, thanks for asking, Eric. I went to the University of Finley, and I graduated in 2010. As a pretty active member of the pharmacy community. With that, welcome, Greg, and can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your involvement in pharmacy? Yeah, thank you, Eric. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Oh, the pleasure is mine. I've been a pharmacist now for nine years. I'm involved in the Ohio Pharmacists Association. I'm the representative for District 2. So that covers Northwest Ohio. My passions are, I think we need to fix this opioid problem. I'm on the committee for workforce issues as well. Great. Sounds like you're pretty active there in Ohio Farms Association. I'm also a member and I know they do awesome work. So thanks for contributing there. So with that, we're going to hop into today's topic of opiates. And Greg, what are some of your quick thoughts on opiates? Yeah, thanks for asking, Eric. Opiates... They have their place. I mean, like they say, drugs are bad, um, but pain is bad. Pain is is a big issue. We've um, gotten ourselves into some trouble, and we're trying to work ourselves out. They have their place, risks, and benefits. They were overprescribed. There was some lying about or um, marketing that they weren't as addictive as they are. Yeah, I would definitely second you on that. Um, I, I, part of the reason I wanted you on here today is you're a retail pharmacist like me. We both work in Ohio. I work in Cleveland area. You work in the Toledo area. And although we're not Southern Ohio, we definitely see the overprescribing and just how hard opiates have hit our state, which is probably why you know we care so much about it because we deal with it and see it firsthand, whether it be in the e- coming out of the ER, chronic pain, what have you. We see a ton of it. No, definitely. And um now that we've been scaling back on opioids, I think we, we actually are seeing the death rate increase or stay the same. Now that fentanyl's in the streets, I heard someone say once that someone that's addicted, they're trying to just stave off withdrawal. They're not trying to overdose. And they know what dose gets them to normal. But sometimes that normal dose is laced with fentanyl and people get themselves into trouble they overdose and we're having deaths yeah you're you're spot on there uh, i've had issues where people have od'd in the parking lot where i work and things of that nature and it's pretty scary as a pharmacist because you know you think did i do something wrong or did i do you know could i have prevented this that sort of thing so yeah with that uh do you think that opioids are overprescribed? what do you uh what do you think about some of their be- prescribing behaviors Yeah, thanks for asking. So they've really scaled back, and that's been driven by our OR system. It's been driven by the CDC offering new recommendations on um, maximum doses, and we're starting to see where insurance companies are not going to pay for pain medications unless it's, you know, from pain management doctors, unless they have a pre-authorization, and maybe only for seven days at a time. 
Yeah, that's been a very hot topic uh, issue here in Ohio, especially where I work. Um, with having Cleveland obviously has so many large hospitals around and so many doctor's offices, we have almost like too much access to, to care compared to the rest of Ohio, if there is such a thing. Uh, but yeah, that seven day limit has really put a damper on the, the quantity of opioids that we dispense, uh, at, at my store, um, being a higher volume store, we go through quite a bit and that's just, we, we still watch them and monitor them, but yeah, we definitely see some of those limits you talk about where Medicare, Medicaid, only cover so many morphine equivalents, which is a uh, kind of like a standard for evening out the doses of opioids. And uh, just for in case some people aren't sure what ORs are, which you mentioned earlier, that's our prescription drug monitoring program, which we have to use in the state of Ohio. It's Ohio Automated RX Reporting System for those who want to get in the weeds on what it stands for. But yeah, using that, and we've seen a huge drop recently, but because of that, we have seen those ODs happen. So why do you think there was some of the overprescribing? Was it like a big pharma thing? Was it patient demand? Was it patient satisfaction? What did you think really drove that? Yeah, what really drove that was marketing that said that pain was a vital sign. That and the, the Press-Ganey scores, which is Press-Ganey was how doctors were evaluated. And one of the questions, how the patients were evaluating doctors was, did the doctor do everything they could to ease your pain, to treat your pain? And so doctors felt like they had this um, a nudge, this cue to prescribe. You know, they, they've done studies and prescribing more opioids, more pain pills, now they're showing, didn't lead to greater functionality, didn't really reduce the pain as much as they as they thought. So now we're starting to see doctors use some some other methods of treating pain. And it's not a real smooth process always. You know, tell me what, what you see, but sometimes this hard seven-day limit because of a prior authorization means the patient doesn't know what to do, how to treat their pain. Yeah. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head there with that. Uh, it's really tough when you try and make these hard set limits as to what can, what can be done for patients. I think seven days was kind of like a great idea. I think it works good for a lot of your ER, your urgent care settings, things of that nature. Um, but we were having even issues where chronic pain patients were getting limited and then you're trying to keep fighting seven days and there was a fill limit on it that all of a sudden, you know, they were up against it just trying to get their pain meds. Um, but I think you hit on a really interesting point with the uh, the press Ganey. Uh, there was a study out of Britain, actually, which I know is in America. But at the same point, it showed that patient satisfaction doesn't necessarily re- uh, end up with better outcomes, which kind of hit your point of, you know, the opioids being overprescribed and also underprescribed. You, end up, you had an issue either way. You really need to try and hit a sweet spot or a happy, happy medium in there. Is that kind of what you were getting at with that? Absolutely. I, I think that when doctors had that question, it put something in their mind that they thought that people wanted pain medication. Maybe that's actually not what they were asking for, but they were kind of primed with knowing that this was going to be a question, how they were going to be evaluated. And so... Yeah, I think that led to overprescribing in the past. You know, I, I know we wanted to talk about bad actors, and there there were some of that as well. 
Yeah, I really think uh, kind of going back to what you're saying there, but the the fact that they felt like they had to give it to him, I saw some of the some of the uh, hospital chains around Cleveland. I don't want to say chain the hospital systems. They uh, they have a lot of residents, and the residents when they were discharging people were checking off that list, and sometimes we saw people who showed up with prescriptions for Percocet, Vicodin, what have you, and they're like, hey, I I got this, but I really don't want it, or can I just get half that? And they really, they kind of knew about it, but they didn't want it. I know in pharmacy, a lot of times we tend to stigmatize people who are like, yeah, I need my pain meds uh, just because we get, we get it so much. We get it all the time. We, we get it thrown at us just constantly. Uh, but some, some people don't want them, which is exactly what you were saying. Um, and mm-hmm. speaking of some of the bad actors, uh, have you read up on some of the stuff going on with uh, Purdue or Insys, uh, some of these other big opioid manufacturers? Yeah. Yeah. This is the next big round of lawsuits that all the same lawyers that were on board with suing the tobacco companies are lining up to sue everybody who touched opioids, all the the manufacturers of opioids. I think all of the Ohio counties are are suing just manufacturers, be it Purdue, uh, Insys, um, even the generic manufacturers, Teva. Yeah. So this was one of the things I really followed closely. In fact, I actually wrote a little bit of an article for a uh, political organization that wanted some commentary on it. But yeah, Purdue has been just ravaged, um, for better or worse, I guess. They've been sued by 48 states. I guess only Nebraska and Michigan have it, which I thought was interesting. Um, But I know Massachusetts was suing them for something like $6 billion alone. Uh, and that was on top of, it was 2006 to 2007, the federal government already settled a lawsuit with them for, I think it was a neighborhood of $270 million that was spread out, which when you're talking mm-hmm. 270 for the whole U.S. versus $6 billion for one state, that's a, that's a huge disparity in what this actual cost was. And if you read the Massachusetts uh, lawsuit, a lot of it was redacted. I think it was, I forget how many pages. And then when it got unredacted, I actually went and read a ton of it. And some of the stuff they were doing, they had drug reps who were making sales goals, like making their goals and exceeding them by like say five, 10%. And then the, I think it was one of the Sacklers, but it could be somebody up higher in the company was actually quoted as saying, that's not good enough. You need to be like these other reps who are hitting like 200% or whatever figure they were hitting. So, I mean, I guess if this was another drug, like say a blood pressure med or maybe like Lipitor or something that helps prevent cardiac outcomes, we wouldn't be so flustered and worried about it. But when you're seeing it with opioids, especially high dose, long acting, super strong opioids that can people can overdose on and people can get addicted to, that's where we're seeing a lot of the uproar about it. What do you, what do you think about some of that stuff? Well, yeah, it sounds like they've they've made their bed. <laughs> yeah, they, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It's um, and they were able to convince doctors that the patients needed this, that this was not a big deal. I think there's yeah, there's some blame that lies with them, but you know, prescribers wrote this and and people got on it, and then really what happened is we ran into a problem where people were addicted and we didn't have the infrastructure to, to treat that, to treat the addiction. And it, it drove people to the streets. Yeah. So actually in preparing for this podcast, we were talking about this a little bit and I really thought you hit an aspect that I, I, I knew of, but I wasn't as well or as in touch with as you are. But oh. c- the, the fact that medication assisted therapy isn't as as prevalent as yeah. it should be is a huge one. Can you add a little bit around that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
it was actually in a, an issue of, I think, Pharmacy Times. They had a whole map of the United States, and they were highlighting the gap of this many people that need medication-assisted therapy or could benefit from it, this many addicts. And there was a huge gap in the amount of providers that were available to treat that. You know, um, each each provider who has their X number who can prescribe Suboxone or, or likewise, you know, methadone clinics, there's not as many of those providers as there are people out there seeking treatment. I'll share a little story with you. I, I've got a friend, a guy that went to my high school. He just said flat out, like, you know, it's hard to find doctors. Some of these inpatient treatment facilities, they're very costly. I don't think prices have gone down much. They've passed some laws recently where uh, prescribers can now see more patients to prescribe Suboxone, and they're making efforts to increase the prescribers that can write for it. So I think they're adding nurse practitioners. Nurse practitioners can get an X number to prescribe Suboxone or buprenorphine products. Yeah, and I think that's awesome. Anything we can do to expand care. Uh, I know sometimes there's a stigma around this stuff, but we I think a lot of it is we do have to look at is we are treating an addiction. And I know some people are into more of the 12-step program. They rely on that heavily. But medication-assisted therapy really is proven to work. In fact, I was listening to a CE and heard some people talk recently that said, actually, the longer someone's on medication-assisted therapy, the better they do long-term and the higher functioning they are which I thought that was huge. You know, we can't just, as you were saying earlier, put someone on like a seven-day opioid course and just assume their pain's gone. We can't put someone on a one-year plan for like Suboxone or any of the other like methadone and just assume, oh, it's a year, you're done because addiction really is an issue that you're not just done with it. You're constantly struggling with it and needing that access to care is huge. You know, kind of sharing a story I had, I had a patient we knew really well at my pharmacy. Uh, He was there all the time. He was always there getting his medications. He had a little bit of a hearing problem. And maybe for that reason, I took a little bit of a liking to him, having a hearing problem growing up myself that got fixed and kind of knowing that the tech struggled to communicate with him. Well, one day he came in and he pops up on my list of patients who I had to do a complete medication reconciliation with through our medication therapy management program. So basically I sat down, go over all those medications with him, see what I could do to help him. Well, while I was doing that in our private consultation room, having built a little rapport with him, uh, he kind of came clean to me and was like, hey, you know, they gave me the gabapentin because I can't get in to see a doctor for addiction. And uh, the poor guy, he's a little bit older. He broke down crying, telling me how he has to buy Vicodin off the street and he has to go through all these extreme measures. And that's just to stave off some of the, the cravings or some of the um, like the shakes and other issues he was getting from the withdrawal. And so I really felt for this guy. I knew he was on Medicaid, so I knew he was going to face a struggle to try and find someone who could take him because a lot of places didn't take Medicaid for the uh, medication assisted therapy for opioid addiction. And so I kind of decided to take it upon myself since I knew he couldn't use the phone because of his hearing problem. I started calling around. And when I started calling around, I think I called six clinics. And if you know the Cleveland area at all, I called almost all the way down to Akron as far out as Eastlake, which is like the far east side and all the way out to like past Avon, the Illyria area, and only found two places that could take him. And that's in a metropolitan area of like 2.2 million people, roughly. So it kind of proves your point that 
man, some of these people really have a tough road to go to even find a provider, not even get there or get treated and make sure they stay on their medication. Is that kind of what you're seeing out there in Toledo too? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, here in Toledo, we see people who need medication-assisted therapy. They're going into Michigan to find doctors, and they seem to find doctors that, uh, anyways, more doctors. I mean, north of Toledo, D- Detroit is only one hour north of Toledo, so they're able to find some doctors here and there. Yeah, it's it's a big problem. So mm-hmm. to your point, I, uh, I I have a friend who works up in Boston area and shared this article. I forget what publication it was with, but they were actually having pharmacists get involved. And I'm not, I kind of read it up and I was a little confused exactly how they were getting involved, but it looks like that they were basically, uh, and I could be totally misconstruing this. So the doctors writing the prescription saying, yes, okay, we'll give them this much because we do know we want to limit a little bit or certain people going to limit their access, only give them a few days at a time, only give them maybe a week at a time, two weeks at a time, because we don't want them to take a whole bunch of OD. We don't want them to divert it for whatever reasons, if there's a, a trust issue there with a provider. But I thought it was interesting that the pharmacy was taking a major role in this, and I couldn't exactly play out how they were getting involved with it. I think it was more of the doctor wrote a standing order of give them a week at a time, you know, up to this long until my next appointment. And the whole point was that the pharmacist was being relied on kind of as like a, a medication management expert in this. And it was a really interesting, I, I st- again, I still, I read it and I'm still a little confused myself, but I thought it was cool that, hey, look, the doctor can see him, knows their addiction, has built a rapport with them, and then can now trust them to have their patient, their appointment spaced a little bit more out, but then can also go back to the pharmacist and say, hey, we need you to kind of manage this for us and help us with the addiction and give us feedback and share that with us so that we can, truly help these patients better, but also increasing the amount of patients that that provider can see. That provider can see. What are your thoughts on a, a kind of far out there idea like that? Wow, that's really neat, Eric. Um, no, I think that would work out well. In, in Toledo, I see a, a number of patients that will come in. It seems like a majority of them, the doctor will see them maybe every week, every two weeks. We just have a handful where they get a monthly prescription something like this, I could see that would limit the doctor visits. But if they still have that contact and the pharmacist taking more responsibility, I think that's something that could work here, you know, in in the Toledo area. You know, if it worked in Boston, it could work here in Toledo. Yeah. And I, I know the huge problem where opiates are down there in Appalachia, West Virginia, Southern Ohio, uh, some of those areas. And I mean, if I'm having a problem in Cleveland, you're having a problem with Toledo trying to find a doctor who can help these patients. Imagine what it's like down there. I mean, it's just so much harder. It's ridiculous to me that it's easier to prescribe an opioid than it is to prescribe medication therapy for it. What, I mean, what are your thoughts on that part? Oh, definitely. So one thing I know that the state of Ohio is trying to do is increase the number of doctors who'd be willing to prescribe medication-assisted therapy. In fact, I, I'd gotten an email sent to me within the last couple of weeks and the state of Ohio sent me a couple of sample informational marketing type material directed towards doctors to get them interested in prescribing medication assisted therapy. So, you know, it was just kind of trying to change the outlook that this isn't just undesirable people that you could be really helping out the community. I still think there's, yeah, there's a lot of stigma attached to opioid, uh, or excuse me, uh, a lot of stigma attached to medication-assisted therapy. There's a lot of perceived barriers. So I think pharmacists can be part of 
working around those barriers, you know, be it the outpatient retail pharmacy setting or working in the doctor's office. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know some things I've seen with uh, various pharmacies. I know in the state of Ohio, uh, we can have a, a standing order kind of to where we can, as long as we have the form, we fill out like a prescription, we can dispense Narcan. And I've seen a lot of hospitals go to the point of almost overprescribing that, which I feel like is at least a, a good faith effort of, you know, someone comes to the ER, they get an opioid, they get something else, and they're not too sure about the the patient will say, or they're not too sure if, you know, the patient knows how to use it correctly because of a language barrier, an understanding issue. And they'll actually just give them a prescription for Narcan too. Um, and then they kind of rely on us to counsel them, to give them the information on it, kind of what it is and how to use it. But with that, there's also some things like uh, Dispose RX, which is a powder that helps absorb up to some of the opioids for the patients who, you know, after they've been seen. Uh, on top of stuff like obviously medication therapy, medication therapy has its role, but doing some other things to kind of keep those opioids from even getting to the streets to help you prevent people from even needing something like medication assisted therapy. What kind of things are you seeing out there in Toledo that can kind of shows pharmacy playing a higher role in uh, the patient care and preventing some of the opioid abuse and diversion? Yeah, thanks for asking, Eric. We have things like Dispose RX, and I'm seeing a lot more of Deuterra. It seems like, and so both of those are powder in a bag. You add it to your, your pills, you add water, and it inactivates the pills, kind of turns into a, like a concrete, a, a solid mass where those pills can't be taken. We're seeing that a couple of the retail pharmacies have Dispose RX. I see that it seems like the health department and some of the other uh, government agencies have access to the Duterra. I'm not, number of, mm -hmm. I'm, sorry, I'm not familiar with Duterra. Is that the same same idea as DisposerX? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. They're just uh, they're they're competitors. Oh. But, okay. Mm -hmm. I think the DisposerX that I've seen kind of looks like oh, say like a, a packet of sugar you might have at a diner, about that size, filled with powder. Whereas these Deuterra packs vary in size. I've seen um, gallon-sized ones. Oh, I've seen like a size similar to your, uh, I really like them, uh, pistachios. Like you get a bag <laughs> of those pistachios of, about that size. Okay. Yeah. One thing that I don't know how well it's reached Toledo, but I've seen it more around Cleveland. And I've seen some of the some of the chains make a big effort for, to it, but increasing the drug take back boxes or drug disposal boxes, whatever you want to call them. Um, and I know all the police stations around us do it, but I think having it at the pharmacy is huge too, because it's a little more uh, impersonal. People who have that stuff or are trying to get rid of it might not want to walk in the police station. Is that something you guys have seen up there? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I know that Rite Aid Pharmacy has added some drug take back boxes. I know that Meyer Pharmacy has. What chains or um, what, what locations seem to have the take-back boxes there in Cleveland? Uh, I've seen Walgreens has it. I've seen CVS has it. Uh, I haven't seen any of the grocery store chains have it, like your, your Walmarts or your Giant Eagles around me. Not to say they don't. I just haven't seen it. But I really, I really love that. In fact, one thing I thought was a kind of a creative solution was – if pharmacies were providing services like that, if maybe like your your state-run program, since the states have a little quicker time on some of the stuff than the federal does, if they would maybe even increase or incentivize pharmacy reimbursement for places that had stuff like that, 
because there's a little more, more work that goes into it, right? Like we both know, like we can't have those in the pharmacy. There's, you know, have to be empty. There's logs we have to keep. There's other stuff like that. But that service goes so far. In fact, one pharmacy I was working at previously had it and they had a, a cardboard, basically a cardboard box that sits inside this big metal, like anchored down bo- uh, like post office like box. And that thing was about the size of a two drawer filing cabinet, maybe a little bit bigger. And almost every two weeks when the guy came, actually he came about every month, that thing was completely full. I mean, we're talking like 40 pounds of drugs in there. And that wasn't all opioids. It was like people's old prescriptions, like lisinopril. Uh, it was, you know, Prozac. It was whatever you could think of. But I thought that was awesome to help, one, keep our, you know, keep our Great Lake clean since we live up here by the lake. And also it was just one of those things that we literally kept that out of be, uh, someone's hands of being misused or someone from taking too much of it. And I really thought that, you know, we're not getting paid anything for that, but we're doing one heck of a community service. And if you kind of incentivize people or incentivize pharmacies, all of a sudden it will almost like mandate that they have to have them. And then we'd see some of those independents in Southern Ohio start having them. Not to say they don't now. I just, I don't work down there, so I'm not familiar. Uh, Then, you know, they could really be doing more more service for their community and really provide an extra point of care or point of access for healthcare. I mean, what do you think of that idea? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. And thank you for bringing that up, Eric. I think that's a, a reoccurring point that you've made is that we get what we pay for. When we were paying for pain medications, we seem to get more of those. If we want pharmacists to get medications out of people's hands and get destroyed, you know, we should pay for that. We need to pay for really the ability to get paid if we don't fill a prescription. Wait, wait. So so we talked about this a little bit, but I want you to elaborate a little bit because this kind of blows some people's minds that a pharmacy could get paid for not filling a prescription. Can you elaborate like why, how, the reasoning, maybe, I mean, I don't even know, maybe even a suggested price. I don't know. Just some ideas that you think about with that. Definitely. No. Well, I, I think, Eric, it's analogous to if you or I go to the doctor's office. If you go to your physician the physician takes a look at you, evaluates your medical conditions, and, and maybe decides that they're going to write a prescription or not, or order a test or, or not. But either way, that physician gets paid. As we start to provide some of these services, some of these services that we as pharmacists have been providing for a long time were really only possible because there was higher margins on prescriptions. And we all know there's not much on those now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think we pharmacists know that, but I guess um, legislators and and our our patients don't don't know all that, that that we're not getting the same amount of money for the services we provide. I mean, we know that patients are are paying more for their health care. So they say they see how much money they're paying increase, but yeah, we in the pharmacies see that we're making less. Um, yeah. And I think you had a good point there too, because depending on how you expand that, like I don't think we should necessarily refuse someone's lisinopril most of the time. If anything, we need to give them a couple extra pills because they always seem to run out early, but uh, or they never seem to take it right, then they all of a sudden are out five days later. To that point, if you were to expand that, you could actually help catch diversion with other drugs. Toledo, I know is a problem when I was there, but it seems they've only gotten worse since I've been to Cleveland. And not saying Cleveland or Toledo is better or worse than each other, but gabapentin, man, 
the amount of times that I see that getting abused or filled at multiple pharmacies or doctor shopping. And if I were able to log into a, a prescription drug monitoring program like ORS and see that there was a refusal to fill on file with a documentation reason of why or like some sort of diagnosis code like abbreviation as to why, it would be very eye-opening to see, you know, how many times certain people are refused. I, I couldn't tell you how many times I've had issues with doctors who are, you know, not, didn't realize that gabapentin was even being abused, let alone that the patient was seeing another doctor. And that's kind of something that's taken off with the decreased prescribing in opioids. So again, kind of you get what you pay for here with exactly what you're saying. If you want medication, you're going to get medication. If you pay for to help limit it, you're going to help limit it. Absolutely. Yeah, you get what you pay for. And you also, we have a role to play in getting payment. We as pharmacists need to do a little bit better job of documenting what we're doing. So you also get more of, or you'll you'll move your measurements on what you measure. So if you're measuring how often you're refusing to fill, you become aware of that and you can say, geez, we, we're not refusing as much as others, or maybe we're refusing a lot. Or as you measure, um, say, how much you take in in drug takebacks, you might see that there's more of a need for that. And then you can justify getting paid for taking back medications. Yeah, I would love to see some of the, uh, and again, I, I kind of aim at the state level just because I know they can move a little bit swifter and then some of the federal programs such as Medicare and what have you. But I, I really think Ohio has kind of stepped up their game with some of these things with things like the Narcan prescribing from, or basically where the Narcan standing orders where pharmacists can dispense them. Uh, and also things like the prescription drug monitoring program. Ohio was fairly early on that. I know Florida held out for a while and I believe every state has one out except for, I know Missouri has a holdout and I, there's one legislator, I'm not sure if he's a doctor or, or I know he's not a pharmacist that just ha is dead set against this. And sometimes I always keep failing to pass that, which at this point I feel like should be a huge like red flag to that person. But either way, that aside, we do so much behind that counter, just like you're saying. And I mean, look at how many acronyms and how many terms we've talked about that the average layperson is probably going, what? That's a thing? Huh? I didn't know that. And this is me and you just talking about what we do every day. So what other ideas do you have that would uh, help tackle some of this opioid stuff? Well, as we mentioned, we need to increase the amount of providers out there who can prescribe medication-assisted therapy. I think involving pharmacists in that process can remove some of those barriers, make it a little bit easier for prescribers to to start prescribing medication-assisted therapy, paying for all the services that pharmacists provide. So sometimes that means not filling prescriptions. It also means you know taking back medication, providing other methods for disposal, like DisposeRx or Deutera. And, and then there's Narcan. Yeah. Are you seeing, uh, are you dispensing a lot of Narcan out there in Toledo or kind of how are you seeing that? I was glad to hear you talk about, you had framed it as kind of a blank. It sounds like a blanket prescribing of Narcan or an over prescribing of Narcan in the Cleveland area. We in Toledo are not seeing that. I think part of it too, and just to, for those listeners who aren't from Ohio, we're both from Ohio, obviously. Toledo is a kind of like what it's like, think of the fourth biggest city in Ohio behind uh, Cleveland, Columbus and Cincinnati and those greater metropolitan areas. Uh, but, you know, Cleveland and Toledo are very different. Toledo is a very it's a it's a smaller Midwest town. 
Uh, there's a lot of farming almost like right at the city limits in Cleveland. You got to drive like a solid, like 45 minutes to an hour before you see that it's pretty dense population wise other. And you know, when you look at Toledo, do you know how big your biggest hospital is there? As in how many beds? Yeah. You know, I, I don't, but I know that, I know that people from Toledo will sometimes clear to the Cleveland clinic for maybe cancer treatment or, or other treatment. Yeah. So um, if I remember correctly, I think Toledo's largest hospital is only a couple hundred beds, like I think 300 beds, which is a pretty good size hospital. But in the Cleveland area alone, I think our VA is 900 beds. Uh, university hospitals, I think is a thousand or 1100. Cleveland clinic is right up there with them. It may probably a little bit of heaven because it's the Cleveland clinic. I know Metro is somewhere around there and that's just their main campus ones. They all have offsite hospitals around the area. Now, each hospital kind of has their own protocols for doing things. And I will say that I, I know Metro has really taken the lead in this Narcan thing, part of it because they're dealing with more of a, uh, a lower income population base. And so they're really kind of taking that initiative. Cleveland Clinic, we don't see nearly, we see very different patients with them. We even see patients from other countries going to the Cleveland Clinic. So to kind of compare our hospitals, like we literally have the, we have some of like the patients who, or some of the hospitals deal with the worst of the worst and some who deal with the best of the best. And so we really see the extremes here in Cleveland, which is kind of weird because, you know, I don't necessarily think of Cleveland as like the, the hot spot or the crossroads of the United States. But when it comes to healthcare, man, we really hit it all in like a couple mile radius. It's pretty ridiculous. So that's some of the differences between Cleveland and, and Toledo, for example. Definitely. Yeah, I, I see what you're talking about. No, I, I think you guys are very lucky there. Uh, we do not have many doctors writing for Narcan prescriptions. But I think that would be another place where, as you mentioned, it sounds like you're guiding the, the patient through that process. Do you need this Narcan? Let me tell you about this. This is why you may need it. How does that conversation usually go for you? You know, I, I, I'm usually pretty good with my rapport with patients. I'm pretty smooth when it comes to learning how to kind of interact with people. I've always been like that. So for me, I feel like it's a little bit easier. A lot of pharmacists do struggle with it though. And it is something you do have to walk on eggshells on a little bit to how you approach that. And you really got to make sure you approach the right patient. On top of that, one area that I know we've seen some pickup with it is we've seen uh, some institutions come in because there's really no reason why we can't give it to them. And like, it's, you know, Narcan for those who aren't as pharmacy savvy cannot be abused in any way, shape or form. Um, it's a simple nasal spray. It goes up the nose. It's really, and it has directions like right on it. Like it's so easy. It's just a simple like, you know, up the nose and, you know, it helps revive the person from an opioid overdose. So it, it's one of those things you only use in a worst case scenario when someone's like passed out, incoherent, not really, not really with it. The, the classic opioid overdose, they're passed out in a car, something like that. And we've seen we've seen some institutions or like some, uh, some churches come in and be like, Hey, you know what? There's Narcan. We've got some funds. We want to stock it so we can either give it to people or so, cause we've had people who pass out in our parking lot for whatever reason. And we want to be able to revive them while we're calling 911 because you know, time matters with stuff like that. And if your brain doesn't get oxygen for three minutes, you can have permanent long lasting brain damage. It's, uh, it's kind of amazing to me that some of these churches actually have reached out and come in and spent the money. We'll, you know, we're not really supposed to hook them up with a discount card, but we do just to kind of, you know, hey, I'd rather get this out in the community to help protect someone, knowing that this is a kind of like a good faith thing that can't be abused. Um, so we've had that happen. We've had some businesses come in and be like, hey, look, 
bill to this person's insurance and we're, we're going to kind of stock it in the office in case there's a problem because we know we have this one guy who we've had issues with with opioids. So that, that's kind of what we've seen. Um, but the conversation with patients is it can be a little tough at times because sometimes there is a small copay with the insurances. It's pretty rare. But a lot of times we I just kind of approach from the angle of, hey, you know, you're on a high dose of this and it might not even be you. It might be, say, like a grandkid who gets a hold of some of your your pain meds and overdoses on them. It might be a child. It might be a significant other. It might be a boyfriend or somebody who's just kind of randomly in your house. But it's always good to have on hand when you have opioids, not even just for you, but for the people around you as well. And not that I'm trying to sell this, but I'd rather you know be promoting this type of behavior than obviously like some of the issues we have with opioids in the state. No, definitely. It sounds like it's really taken off there. And uh, I look forward to that happening in the Toledo area. Being on the Lucas County's opioid task force, oh, maybe a year and a half ago, they asked me to present my knowledge about Narcan. And what they were trying to do is expand how much Narcan was out there, get it in the hands of people that need it. They were looking to me to talk to pharmacies to get it on their shelves. I says, I think pharmacies are willing to, to stock it. They're willing to dispense it. You know, I had a little call to action for them to say, like, well, how about, you know, if some doctors prescribe it, we're fine with dispensing it. But the doctors, they, they weren't prescribing it. And it's still fairly rare that they do prescribe it here in Toledo. More often, what we're seeing is that we, we have a protocol at the pharmacy I work at so we can... Um, essentially prescribe it as an over-the-counter medication. Yeah, and you know, one thing I would like to see with it, and maybe this is going a little one step too far for some pharmacists, but I mean, this is just kind of me, you know, making a call to action here for some of the steps we've made. But I would love to see a sign outside of every pharmacy in Ohio that says, Narcan available here. Not just for the fact that, you know, hey, we have overdose overdoses or people who need it, but if somebody does have an overdose or, you know, they're afraid to like call the cops for whatever reason, stop in the pharmacy and we can have some sort of either fund to cover our cost with it or some way that we can just, you know, be that point of care and that access point. Cause there's so many pharmacies even in all over Ohio and it's been decreasing with some of the PBM stuff. That's a whole nother topic for a different conversation, but you know, just to be that point of care. And if we can sit there and show like, Hey, look, we essentially provided like almost like an emergency type setting for somebody who's overdosed because again in southern ohio a pharmacy might be 10 minutes away or 15 minutes away but a hospital might be an hour away that's a big difference when you're talking about point of care for somebody who's who's overdosed on an opioid and i would i mean i'm not gonna sit there and say i would love to see that situation because i'm sure my heart rate would be about 200 through the roof but it'd be really rewarding at least to be like hey look i was able to do this to help somebody in an absolute crisis situation while the rest of the first responders, you know, came out because an ambulance might be 10 minutes away or even longer, 15, 20, but the pharmacy was right there. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Pharmacies are accessible. That's the, one of the biggest values we can provide just being accessible, be it for questions, for disposal of medications, for questions the public has about Narcan and dispensing it to them if, if need be. I believe a majority, a majority, I know a majority of chain pharmacies or larger pharmacies have protocols where they can get someone Narcan, you know, today if they just 
go in there, say, hey, I'd like to have this just in case, you know, because I know someone or because you never know. I'm sure your home has a a fire extinguisher. I know my home does. If uh, my neighbor or just someone needed it, I I feel much more comfortable having Narcan around to help out in need. Yeah, you know what? I never, you know, used it like that before, that analogy, but I love that analogy of the fire extinguisher. That is great because, you know, like you said, you'd rather have it and not need it than the opposite. And, you know, if your neighbor's house is on fire, would you get, would you try and use your fire extinguisher? I know I sure would. Obviously, within limits, if the whole house is completely in flames, that might be past what my little fire extinguisher can do. But, you know, this isn't quite that extreme. If I see someone passed out in their car, I can go use the thing and spray it in their nose to help revive them. And the great thing is with Narcan, if you give it, I mean, one, if, if you give it and they're not overdosed, it's not going to hurt. So it kind of falls right in that, that aspect for healthcare of do no harm. Now, it, obviously you wouldn't give it unless you couldn't arouse them and you had some suspicion of it. So it's a little bit different, but I love the fact that if you gave it to somebody, it's not going to cause a problem. Definitely. It can be very powerful. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Hey, just to recap here for some of our listeners, uh, some of our calls to action today, obviously we spent a lot of time talking on Narcan. I think that increasing Narcan availability is one of them. Greg seems to agree with that. Uh, needing more things like drug disposal boxes would be awesome just so we can help keep drugs off the streets, more access to things like dispose RX or Dutera, which I was unaware of, but Greg seems to know quite a bit about. Uh, increasing some reimbursements for refusing to fill prescriptions or even giving a reimbursement for refusing to fill a prescription for a valid reason, which would even dive into the litany of reasons we could probably give for refusing something like that. And I actually know that's something that Ohio Pharmacists Association was working on. Uh, Antonio Chacha actually mentioned that to me. And then also another thing that Greg seems to know a lot on was increasing accessibility to medication-assisted therapy. Greg, do you think that sums it up pretty well that we kind of talked about? Yeah, definitely, Eric. I think that's a good summary. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks for uh, hopping on our podcast, Greg. I appreciate it and look forward to working with you sometime in the future. Have a wonderful night and thank you all for listening to uh, the Political Pharmacist Podcast. Podcast.